Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, everyone. Great to be here. Forgive the clunky laptop. I, as I was explaining to your friends down the road in Aldershot, when you leave your wife with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, you also have to leave her with the iPad. <laughs> because you can't take away the second and the third parent for a week. That got more traction this time. Um, it's great to be with you all. Golly, you have to clean your glasses if you want to stand on this stage, don't you? Um, I want to start with a little story, and it's a story of uh, a cup of tea I once had with an old lady about an hour away from Cape Town. I live in Cape Town, have been there for the last 15 years, and um, I went there and I was, uh, I say I was, I still am pretty much, but I was quite angsty and quite kind of um, desperate to impress, and um, I was trying to explain to her all the exciting things that were going on in our tree of life. 24-7 prayer community, which is based in a community called Mannenberg, a township 20 kilometers east of the city. And so I was saying to her, um, oh, you know, we're going to have to pray in the new visitors, you know, the workers for the, the harvest and all of that sort of thing. And my goodness, we're going to need the Lord to provide us with money and this and that. And, the, you know, people know us in the community and, you know, this is great. And, and she just... <laughs> She was a bit of a battle axe with a really wrinkled face, and her already wrinkled face began to kind of contort and wrinkle further, and she just held her, she closed her eyes, and just held up her hand like this, and just said, stop. And I was like, okay. I immediately recognized that she wasn't remotely impressed with what I'd been sharing, and she said, um, growth is fine. But if you haven't grown in the presence of Jesus and his presence and love for the poor, she said to me, then you haven't grown at all, you've just swelled. I thought, great, well, this, is a, <laughs> this has got intense, hasn't it? And so I'm so excited for you at Emmaus Road, and you're growing. And my prayer for you, that you, you continue to grow in prayer. You continue to go, grow in love for and God's presence amongst the poor, as I know you already are. And I continue to pray that this theatre would be full of those that society has marginalised and forgotten about. And that, like Paul says in Galatians, that you would remember the poor. Literally remembering the dismembered from society. That's my prayer for you as you grow. And so I'm so excited to be here. Um, and as I've alluded to, uh, I have an uh, ongoing struggle with the need to be recognized or uh, the internal voice in my head that tells you uh, you've got nothing to show for your life. You're a failure. Uh, I learned a great German word that is Geltungsbedürfnis, um, which I, know I don't pronounce very well. But it is simply this German word that explains what we have to use a sentence to, and that is the need to, the need to be seen as valuable and worthwhile in the eyes of others. And when I tell people who ask, what's the second book about? I say, oh, it's called How to Be Unsuccessful. I often get a bit of a snort and a wry laugh and a, oh, you should have come to me. I could have given you a lot of stories about that. Or, oh, maybe I should write one of them. 
And I think deep down, each one of us, am I right, struggles with this sense of comparison. This, this sense of, I don't know about you, but I spend probably a disordinate amount of time doom scrolling and, and ultimately comparing myself and being, oh, I'm not as good as them, not as good as them. Better than them. <laughs> not, and one way or the other, it's conceit, isn't it? Because either I'm despondent and bleak that I don't measure up, or I'm just proud and conceited that I think I'm better than someone else. And so it was at the beginning of COVID, um, after we had been to Hong Kong, my wife and I, and this uh, old friend of ours, Jackie Pullinger, had kind of given us her life manifesto over seven, year, uh, uh, over seven days of 60 years of ministry amongst the poor that I was hammering away at my laptop and got back to Cape Town just as COVID began. And I began to see a church around the world fueled by what felt like a kind of angst-driven activism. I don't know if you know what I mean, but it's generally the selfies of the food parcels and that sort of thing. And I began to feel, along with the six addicts that we had invited to lock down with us, um, when we first thought that lockdowns were going to be three weeks. Remember that? <laughs> six months later, we we're like, I don't know if this is such a good idea, but that's another story. And I began to think, oh, I just need to get some of this teaching into a book. I need to like, I can, maybe I can relate this to some of my own uh, success issues. And maybe I can root it in some of the uh, life that we're living in Manenberg. And so the book really is a kind of warfare slash therapy for me. And if anyone else benefits from it, then I'm really excited. Um, now, Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist, said this. He said, success like happiness, cannot be pursued, it must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. A couple of you are nodding, and if you know Jesus and follow Jesus today, you'll know that the person that we choose to surrender ourselves to is Jesus Christ. We are his apprentices, his disciples. He's the one who says, if you hold to my teachings, you'll know the truth and it will set you free. And I'm beginning to experience a measure of that in my life. And maybe you are too. So day to day, my wife Sarah and I and our children, Simtandile and Luca, live in Manenberg, a community that shouldn't exist. It was built by the racist apartheid regime in the 60s and 70s to house those whose homes had been forcibly uh, uh, bulldozed and who had been forcibly removed into dormitory-style housing 20 kilometers east of the city. The world calls us to seek the movers and shakers, but I wonder if Jesus calls us to seek the moved and shaken. And so when Sarah and I decide, were trying to work out where do we live in Cape Town, the most racially segregated city and the most economically unequal country on earth, we remembered in John 1 what people said about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you only have to Google Manenberg to see what the prevailing narratives say. But generally, let me sum them up, can anything good come out of Manenberg? And so we really, truly believe that Jesus, if he lived in Cape Town today, would live in or around Manenberg. And our shared life with those coming out of gangs and drugs, uh, abused mothers and their children, um, and just really anyone who's, who wants in, is our truest response to the gospel in that context that we can think of. 
Now, I can explain it through words, but we've actually made a short little sort of a four-minute video that, that goes some way to show some of the people, the stories, and the context, and some of the framing worldview, I suppose, behind our shared life in Manenberg. So if whoever's got the button can press it, thanks. What people say yeah, in the community, there will never be peace in harmony. But I think if everyone would receive what we received, I think a lot would change, everything would change, people would change, the community would be different, and I think there will be peace in harmony. With the, the forceful removals, everyone was just dumped here on this piece of land and they were to like and sort themselves out. Obviously families were broken up and people were feeling unsafe. The idea of Menembert, it was created to hold or, or, or gather the unwanted. And that's how the gangsters started out. It started out like just we protecting our space and ourselves because we're feeling vulnerable. And then it started to evolve into this thing where it's now our turf and our this and the fighting in between. Things were taken from you violently and you were put here with nothing. And then the drugs came in and it's like, and yes, let's just medicate this pain. Like growing up in Minnebuck is challenging. Like the choices you have to make every day, like being exposed from a young age to gangsterism, people stabbing each other, people running with guns in your road. I didn't have a parent that was there for me like I needed them to be. I went to go look for that parent's love elsewhere. Yeah, and that made me like end up in addiction. Crystal met. Um, I smoked when I was 12 years old. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to find out to get love, so I look for love in the wrong places. There's a lot of things that I needed freedom from and healing from. That day I saw my father's tears for the first time in my whole life. First time I saw him cry for me because he wanted me to make a change. Do we need to take you out or can this really happen inside of this place? Inside the hurt, inside the pain, inside of all the stuff. Can beautiful stuff happen, can beautiful stuff spring up. We want to see a community change, but not change just to get by. Change that is rooted, it's, it's rooted in love. I felt a love I never experienced in my life, the way those people took me in. They didn't see the, the evil, they see good in me and I couldn't see that. A family that loves one another and supports one another in just any situation. Seeing like what community actually looks like, they actually like family to me. Living in community with people and with the girls and they're, they've chosen to come here because they want to try and change their life and they want to heal and they go to the hard places, I think. Living here with them, I can't not do the same. That I also have to lead by example and also go to the hard places for me. The whole community, they have really boosted up my confidence. I have confidence now that I've never had. I think I would have still been out there or dead by now if Tree of Life wouldn't have been here and have their doors open for me to come and stay and receive the love that they had for me and 
we just want to see people grow grow from where they've been into something different Jesus would be there Jesus would, would definitely be there when it's hurting and there's there's no money or there's violence against women and children or just young men being taken of the innocence there's the places Jesus wants to be at this is a beautiful place just see God so much in that that his desire for the world was that it was everyone together moving together So Cape Town is a remarkable place. You've got the glitz of the Atlantic seaboard and the ghetto of places like Manenberg. You've got it reg regularly featured in the top 10 places to go for tourists around the world, and yet at the same time regularly featured in the top 10 list of cities of homicides per 100,000 people. And our life is very simple. We've made our home in Manenberg. We do life together, generally a bit more successfully Monday to Saturday than on Sunday. On Sunday, we have a sort of slightly chaotic gathering of ex-addicts, current addicts, Muslims, children with all sorts of developmental problems and a smattering of Christians around. Uh, a bit like this, I suppose. A little bit more low-key today. But our life is very simple. We live there. We invite young men struggling with gangs and addiction and women with abuse and their children to come live with us. We introduce them to Jesus and the Holy Spirit gets them free as we get free. Because here's the thing, it's not I've moved to Manaburg to help people. Let me tell you some exotic stories from the mission field. This is, I'm a beggar and I found bread and I'm telling you where you can also find some. Lila Watson, the uh, Australian Aboriginal activist said, if you've come here to help, then don't bother. But if somehow your freedom is wrapped up in mine, then let's walk together. And what I'm finding in a life proximate to those that the world say are bad people, gangsters and addicts, and belong in jail, I'm recognizing no one's a bad person, or everyone's a bad person, just some of us have been saved by grace. Amen? And nobody belongs in jail, but we all belong in kingdom family. And so I am changing as others are changing because they are changing me through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 10, the Apostle Paul said, I want to know Christ. And he gave us two keys for what it means to know Christ. Anyone want to know Christ a bit better? Yeah, yeah, good, pretty good percentage of you want to know Jesus better. You're in the right place. He said, I want to know Christ. And he then gave us two keys, didn't he, for how to know Christ better. He said, I want to share in the, uh, uh, what did he say? I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Um, and so what this means is that if we want to know Christ, there are two keys one is power and one is participation, okay? And the first thing, the difference between a kingdom justice movement and just a justice movement oriented around the ideologies of the world is this, that we contemplate Christ first. 
He is where we start and where we finish. We fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we realize through the spiritual disciplines, do we not? That he is indeed king, that we are indeed sinful but forgiven. And yet we cannot move so far away from him that we forget that that is where it begins and ends. And as we contemplate Christ, he turns us outwards into a world. And the first thing he does is he gives us an awareness, I believe, of heaven. We are seated in heavenly places. And he gives us an awareness looking at earth from the reality of heaven. And what would it mean to bring heaven to earth, to co-labor with the Spirit, to see the kingdom of God break through? Well, this is what I call revivalism. It's basically a dependency on the supernatural empowering of Jesus for signs, wonders, and miracles, like Acts 10 tells us. Acts 10 tells us that, Jesus anointed, uh, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. God is with us as we contemplate him and he makes us aware of heaven and then we realize that the revival that the world needs and honestly no political or economic solutions are able to bring uh, 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 um, shalom in the world that the kingdom can, we begin to realize that a next world focused evangelism, that is posh chat for sharing your faith with others. Or there's then the healing of bodies, which is the supernatural healing of our limbs and cells and whatever else. It makes me think of a friend uh, Cynthia, who had a leg that was shorter than the other, and she had a sciatica pain, and her hip was out, because as she was pregnant and the baby grew, it pushed on all the wrong things. You can tell I'm a real expert in pregnancy. And she couldn't run for six years. She'd been to every doctor she could. No one had any solutions. And one day, my friends Claire and Zeander had had enough, not with Cynthia, but just with this affliction, with this sickness, you know, because if we read the gospel or the book of Acts and we look at our everyday life, I don't know about you, but there's a, 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 a worrying gap between the life I live and the life I read in, in such books. And so they were trying to close the gap. They went to Cynthia, who was lying on her back, couldn't move really, and they prayed. As they prayed, as they welcomed the presence of Jesus, the empowering of the Spirit came grew Cynthia's leg out, righted her hip, took away the sciatica pain. She immediately leapt up out of her bed and ran outside where it was hammering it down with rain. Her husband, Leon, who you saw in the video, looked out of the window, jaw dropping, walked out then. She ran up to him and jumped on him. He enveloped her in his huge arms and they just wept as years of disappointment Years of trauma and pain, years of doctor's fees and getting steadily worse, melted away in the hug of the father. Or I think of a friend who was struggling with a heroin addiction and had no power of his own to get off it. He had tried everything you could imagine, including literally just locking himself in a room and seeing how that worked. And he came to me and I said, I have no solutions for you except that I wonder if we pray together and the Holy Spirit comes and you get baptized in the Holy Spirit and start praying in tongues. That might help. I said, I'd read it in a book before and that seems to add up to what I read in the Bible, so let's give that a go. He's like, fine, nothing to lose. Did it. And so for seven, seven days, we slept next to each other in a prayer room. 
And he woke up in cold turkey and pains, and I prayed, and he prayed, and he received the gift of tongues, spoke in tongues, the pains would go, he'd go back to sleep. Miraculously delivered of the demonic affliction of heroin withdrawals. And so my point is here, maybe you are today feeling like there are solutions I need in my life that I cannot humanly or physically do on my own. I've given everything a shot, the best shot I know how. But I need the supernatural empowering presence of Jesus to come and release me from whatever it might be. Well, you are in the right place. But then the second thing that contemplation and fixing our eyes on Jesus, and prayer, and an inner life does, is that not only does it make us aware of heaven's perspective, but it also makes us aware of what's going on in the world. We begin to read the news, and we begin to choose people, not issues, and then find that issues kind of choose themselves as we orientate ourselves relationally. And we begin to see that actually lament is a appropriate response to the things going on in the world. And that fuels, as Paul said, a participation in the sufferings of Jesus. We want the resurrection power, absolutely, all of that, please. That's not fringe charismania, by the way. That is just conventional Christianity. And it's as supernatural to love your neighbor as yourself as it is to raise the dead. Amen? Both are impossible in and of yourself. But then the flip side of that is that as we contemplate Jesus, we become aware of the plight of the world around us, and we lament. And we begin to realize that not only is Jesus our personal Savior who wants to heal our bodies, but he's also our liberator who wants to heal our memories, who wants to heal us from the trauma of the love deficits and issues in our lives, but also wants to heal maybe our people group or our family or our town or our area of collective trauma responses to historic injustice. Amen? He also wants us to advocate a this-world-focused justice, not just a next-world-focused evangelism. And then finally, he wants to release us from the demonic oppression of systems of injustice that proliferate death, as well as from personal demons that afflict. And so contemplating Christ, I cannot stress this enough, I believe this was Paul's key for us. Knowing him better is combining the supernatural with suffering, power and participation, revivalism and activism. Because there's this um, song I'm sure you'll have heard if you've been in church for longer than a week. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Pete, you going to sing it for us? No, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I'm absolutely happy to sing that as long as we remember the next verse. Because that is heavenly minded. But we're not so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. His word shall not fail you, the second verse goes, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. And so the kind of activism that emerges from contemplation of Jesus is not ideologically based. It is not cancelling and virtue signalling and having the right thing up on your Instagram wall. It is none of that. Honestly, I have no idea how people have so much time for that if we're only doing the stuff. But it doesn't mean that if it's... It doesn't mean that anger is not a thing for those of us fueled by the hope of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Augustine said this. He says, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. 
anger at the way things are, and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. And so a righteous anger gives us the courage to engage in unjust systems of the world, but bring joy and hope where there is despair. I once heard somebody say, burnout cannot possibly be a Christian term. If we are burning the fuel God has given us to do the things he's called us to do, then he will always provide enough. It's when we go off piste and forget about contemplation and start taking on unhealthy, uh, 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 what's the word, um, burdens that are not ours to carry, that we begin to find ourselves burning out. And so I was chatting to someone yesterday about the uh, Asbury outpouring, and I know you guys have talked about it, and some of you probably went to see that. And she was telling me, you know what, the, the less well-publicized story of what happened the night before the um, mediocre preach by the um, admission of the guy who preached and set the whole thing going in the first place was a thing called the witnessing circle. Sounds slightly like... <laughs> In my mind, it sounds a little bit like a sort of group of witches or something, doesn't it? The witnessing circle. But it's actually the absolute opposite of that. It was a bunch of people gathering to acknowledge the centuries-old injustices, racial injustices done in that locale over the years and naming names of those who were sold into slavery and repenting and making moves of restoration and reconciliation towards each other through tears as the Spirit of God anointed them as they prayed. And then guess what? The next morning, all of that happened. Is it a stretch to say the foundation of the Asbury outpouring was that meeting? Probably. Is it a stretch to say that it was a huge part of what then began to happen? Absolutely not. And so we should not, because we don't want to create formulas, right? We love a formula, but we don't want to do that. And so my question is, how could Emmaus Road be committed, as committed, to the healing of memories as we are to the healing of bodies? And maybe you think, well, a lot of my work is on the one side. Well, how can you balance that to the other? Because the two are combined This is not a theological dichotomy where you choose one or the other. The the prophetic, the voice of God, combines revivalism and activism. And the prophetic uh, manifests in the personal, where you may have heard the voice of God before, speaking to you, that you've journaled down. Someone, a perfect stranger, may have come to you and actually said, "Uh, I, I don't know you, but and then they tell you something they could not possibly know about your life, or your upbringing, or your destiny, or your calling. But you see, unless we are living in the personal prophetic, and unless we are cultivating a personal prophetic culture in our churches and home groups, then probably as we begin to try and address the systemic prophetic, which is bleeding edge of injustice, speaking truth to power, we may well find ourselves calcifying and becoming bitter and burnt out because we have not brought a hope that is fueled by the Spirit of God. And so again, we find ourselves needing to go back to contemplation, to the place of encounter and the presence of God. And then the final thing is that what this shows us is that uh, we are able to uh, 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 revive the church and rewire the culture through a nod to the past and the present. The revivalists would look at church history and moves of God. The activists might look at historic injustice and political organization. And these come together through the personal prophetic fueling the systemic. Or as Martin Luther King says, life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites held in fruitful harmony. 
a creative synthesis, a mixture of two things that we have been told do not mix, held together generatively, in fruitful harmony. They bring something other than themselves, beyond themselves. And the prophetic holds two sides of the coin together. Now, we don't want to forget the final part of our verse for today. It says, becoming like him, Jesus, in his death. And this is where it becomes a little intense. Everything up to now has been small talk. If you're really honest with yourself, can you say that what you're living for is worth dying for? This is not meant to be a condemning thing. It's meant to be an invitation because Jesus said in John 10, John 10, 10, this, this sort of favorite soundbite verse that we tend to kind of rip out of context and just put on our, I don't know, social media. He says, I've come to give you life and life in its fullness, right? Now, if you follow Jesus, you might know a little bit of what life and life in its fullness looks like. Despite my hang-ups and insecurities and hypocrisy, I'm beginning to discover what he means by life in its fullness. But then how does he conceptualize this fullness of life? How does he describe it? We need to read on to see. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it a number of times. The father loves me because I lay down my life. He's not coerced into it. He chooses to do it. And his point is that fullness of life for us as his followers is found in laying down our lives. And I would argue that we cannot find true kingdom abundance any other way. And the paradox is this, that abundant life in its fullness is not hidden in the kind of success the world tries to peddle us that is actually making people's soul sick. Henry Nouwen, the Dutch uh, uh, philosopher and theologian, who was a... um, Harvard academic and just nailing it in his stream and just being flown all over the world doing talks and being told that he was unbelievably successful, uh, acknowledges, confesses that the very success others were applauding him for was making his own soul sick. And so the world will champion you if you're able to point to noise, make, uh, uh, noise numbers, and narcissism. We see people being celebrated for imposing and transferring their mess and shadow self onto others. If I trample over others, it doesn't matter as long as the bottom line and the the end justifies the means. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The end is life in its fullness. But the means, the way to get there, the entry level, the door, is to give up your life, is to die to self. Laying down your life is what leads to fullness. Becoming like Jesus in his death is the prerequisite for uh, resurrection. And participation in Jesus' suffering amongst the deliberately silenced and preferably unheard is the thing that fuels the power we need to bring solutions to a world growing sick. As C.S. Lewis says, nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died 
will ever be raised from the dead. Which is really just a paraphrase of John 12 that says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains only a single grain. But if it dies, it will yield a rich harvest. Can you imagine the exponential harvest that God wants to bring through your life and yet you are unwilling to die to the success that the world is trying to peddle you? And he's saying, come and die. Come and die. Now, I want to tell you a story because that sounds like an intense, rather sort of unattractive invitation. My friend Munir lived with me about 10, 12 years ago. He uh, was a Muslim. He was in a gang called the Clever Kids, ironic. But he uh, had defected from a gang called the Hard Living. So he was a wanted man. He was a marked man. He was nicknamed Chucky, rather um, un uh, unflatteringly, because one of his eyes like, was kind of hanging out because he had been stabbed in the face uh, in prison, where he was for uh, shooting the police with a semi-automatic weapon. And... I know this might sound like a weird thing to say, but he's like the nicest guy. Like he's so soft-hearted. And he said, Pete, can I come and live with you for a bit? I said, sure, for sure. I once heard someone say, don't share the gospel with someone unless you're willing to give them your bed. Which I misquoted once and said, unless you're willing to share your bed with them. <laughs> Which is not, yeah, you get it, good. I said, sure, but one of the things we do, Munir, is that we read the Bible together every day. He goes, no, that's fine. You know, it sounds kind of vaguely exciting. And um, so we were reading the parable of the sower. And, you know, that's where the, the, the farmer's sowing on four different types of ground. And spoiler alert, you know, the, the point of it is, like, which soil are you? Are you rocky? Are you the one that birds took away? Are you the shallow one? Or are you the good soil? Now, I asked Munir, I said, what soil do you think you were? He didn't know, but he was absolutely sure he was probably the bad soil. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, because I'm a prison gang member. Uh, and a prison gang is a thing you join in prison. Surprise, surprise. That is a lifelong commitment. And it's a blood covenant. And you enter through death, through killing others. And he said, so I'm that. And I'm also a Muslim, which is also a life commitment that isn't Jesus. So I recognized that if Jesus was here and was a bit judgy, he would probably call me bad soil. I said, well, why don't we pray, Munir, that... Jesus shows you that both of those seemingly lifelong obstacles, one of which is a blood covenant, and the other is which involves a lot of deep loyalty to your family's culture, why don't we show you that what seem like insurmountable obstacles do not need to preclude you from entering the kingdom of God? He said, sure, okay. You know, I think he's at this point, just like, whatever makes Pete shut up. <laughs> so, so I prayed for him. And he got on with his day. I went off. And then we got back in the afternoon. I said, how's your day, Munir? He said, yeah, yeah, good, yeah, yeah. Um, weird thing happened to me at uh, Manenberg Avenue, or either roundabout. I said, oh, yeah. He said, um, yeah, these four men walked up to me. They're in suits, and they're all holding these big books under their arms. And he said, um, they look like Kekbrus, which is like church brothers. And I said, okay. And he said, but they had... Um, prison gang tattoos all over their necks and faces. I said, oh, don't see that much. And he goes, yeah, and they introduced themselves. And it was Ikhshan, Muhammad, Abu Bakr, and Yasin. And I was like, oh, they sound like they might be Muslim. He goes, yeah. He said, they said they were Muslim, and they were in the prison gang. But they had met Jesus. He had saved their lives, brought them out of addiction, trauma, crime, and all the rest of it, and were now living life in its fullness. And they said, as they were walking, they felt the Spirit of God I, I don't think he quite used this language. This is, yeah. It was like they felt like they were to meant, meant to come up to me and pray. 
and say that Jesus had opened a door for me and that I just needed to walk through it. And he started, sort of kept sort of stirring his tea and just sort of began to walk off. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> let, let, let's piece together some of what's happened today, shall we? And as I explained to you, you know, do you think maybe God answered your prayer that we prayed earlier? You know, I don't want to impose my kind of narrative on your story, but it seems pretty... And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. That was 13 years ago. He still hasn't made that commitment to die to self. He is still a gang member. As far as I know, he's still addicted. And I believe that he had probably one of the clearest callings from the heart of the father for a son to come home. My point is not to end on a low. My point is to say that we can miss it. My point is that, thankfully, not even Jesus can make us do what we don't want to do. He's not going to strong arm you into some life you hate the idea of. He's not here to ruin your fun. Life in its abundance, life in its fullness, is an increase of joy, which, by the way, is another stratosphere to mere entertainment or worldly success. And so can I get you to stand? Yeah, yeah, that'd be nice, Pete. And I don't know how you do prayer ministry here. There's very little front room at the front. But can we... Okay, let's... Imp- okay. Um, we're being fed all sorts of stuff by the world, the flesh and the devil, that deforms our desires and gives us what in Narcotics Anonymous language is team termed plausible but untrue excuses. But this morning, the Spirit of God is speaking to us. Not because I say so or because we're in a theater, but because He always is. And it's when we turn down the noise of everything else around us that I believe we're able to hear Him a little bit clearer. And so I want to pray for various groups of people, if that's okay. And here's what we're going to do. If, as I name stuff, there's an activation, a sort of a moment of courage that's required. I hope that's okay. If it resonates with you, what I'm saying, then I ask you to put up your hand. And the people around you will see that you put up your hand and will not jump on you or condemn you. They might reach out and put their hand on your shoulder, but they'll pray for you. Because remember, we begin and end in contemplation and prayer with Jesus. Okay? Does that sound all right? Not too complicated? And if no one puts their hands up, then it would seem that Jesus is coming back very soon. So why don't we pray? Some of us know that God has invited them to follow 
him with everything. And yet, if you're really brutally honest with you, there's an area of your life that probably most others wouldn't know about, but as I'm speaking now, you're just, the Spirit's just bringing to mind whatever that might be. And it's just an area of your life that you're just aware is maybe only partially surrendered to God. And again, this isn't a condemnation thing. It's just saying he, he wants to liberate us from the kind of holding on to an old life that doesn't fit us anymore. And so if that's you, put up your hand, people will pray for you. There are others who feel like, yeah, actually, maybe it was even 13 years ago, 2010, that you felt the call of God or the invitation of God into something that was really quite intimidating or scary or seemed a bit weird or intense. And you've kind of forgotten about it until now. But again, I believe the Holy Spirit is stirring up something that might have settled on the riverbank of your heart to mix metaphors. And let it rise. Let it come up. Be curious to what's emerging. Maybe it was a dream, a dream for your life, a direction for your life. And actually, if you look back now, you think, oh, I missed it. Oh, I missed it. It's too late now. And then in comes Satan with a bunch of plausible but untrue reasons as to why you're right. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The invitation to lay down your life is not out of date. It is very much still there. There's a gate waiting for you to open. And the expansiveness of life and soul coherency and kingdom is waiting for you. If only you would resurrect that old dream. Resurrection power flood this place. If that's you, as before, put up your hand and people around you will pray for you. And there are others, I believe, who maybe in the sort of later stages of life, maybe you're just feeling a little bit older and you're feeling, you know what, that all sounds fine. I tried that once and I got burnt. All well and good, Pete, you saying uh, burnout's not a Christian term, but it was for me. And I don't think I fully recovered. Maybe you trusted someone who went on to betray you. Maybe you opened up your home to somebody stepping out on a limb and that went badly. Things went missing and friendships and bridges were burnt. And you think, I wish I hadn't done that. I would do that differently now. Jesus is saying, put up your hand because heaven wants to congratulate you. The cloud of witnesses wants to congratulate you because you gave it a go. And it's not too late to renew your trust. It's not too late. And then finally, I want to pray for people 
actually penultimately, I want to pray for people who, if you're really honest, you're just a little bit bored. And it's such a sort of, could feel like such an embarrassing thing for those of us who are meant to feel like we've come alive in Jesus. And yet, if we're honest, the monotony and the drudgery of the day-to-day the relationship breakdowns and the mental health struggles, the financial insecurity and the fear of the future, all kind of mixes to create a rather exhausting, boring reality. And if that's you, put up your hand because the Spirit wants to meet you in that place. ongoing plod of faithfulness to Jesus I think may well be one of the most beautiful acts of worship that we'll be so surprised in the throne room well done good and faithful servant you are bored and you are struggling and you are here and finally I would love to pray for people who know that God has called them to pioneer something new. You know, it's that thing of if, if, if money weren't an object, what would be that thing you would do for him? And maybe it actually has nothing to do with money, it's just pioneering something on the bleeding edge of injustice you think oh, I don't know Lord I'm, I'm, I'm intimidated by that I haven't read enough books <laughs> I'm not qualified well the good news is he doesn't call the qualified right he qualifies the called and I believe that there are some apostles and pioneers in this room who have been maintaining, weeding a garden that somebody else planted. And Jesus is saying, go to a rubbish dump and get your hands dirty and plant your own garden. Not so that people will look at you and you'll feel more successful, but just because that's what you are made to do. And that's what the world needs, is you coming fully alive in your calling. So if that is you, would you put up your hand and people will pray for you? There we go. That seems to resonate. And if your hand's down, then good for you. But turn to your left or right and pray for your brothers and sisters. We're going to continue to worship and continue to pray.